Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have our crew here in the studio. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Brad. Bob. Hello, guys. Philip. Good morning. Dustin. Good morning. So it is Friday before Super Bowl, and we're all excited to be ready for the big game on Sunday. But we're going to talk through some topics today where we're going to look at issues that happen post-calving, especially those retained placentas and prolapses, kind of find out what we can do with those. Dustin's got a report that he wanted to share with us about cattle being cattle on feed increasing in Kansas and what are the implications. And then we've got some questions here at the end. Uh, before we get into those, guys, I mentioned it's it's Super Bowl weekend. I could ask you, and I've asked you in the past, what's your favorite commercial? What's your favorite food you're going to have during the game? But this time, this is just a regular football question. What's your favorite nickname for a football player? Oh. Uh, oh, man. Well, you got, you know, Broadway Joe. Okay. Broadway, Broadway Joe. Joe. Don't take them all. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you're just naming I was, them. I'm just going to start naming a bunch. But, yeah, that, that's a good nickname. Oh, my goodness. The only one that comes to mind is Refrigerator Perry. The Refrigerator, that's, that's a good one. That's what I was going to say growing up in Illinois. You know, you got the Bears, so you got the fridge. Yeah, but you, you had other nicknames on that team. Yeah, that was my Iron Mike favorite. or Samurai Mike for the – was the linebacker, yeah. Brian? Uh, I'm just – I'm stalling for you, Brian. Yeah, no, no, no. I, yeah, I don't uh, – Sweetness. Yeah. Sweetness. No, yeah. What was Jim McManus? Did he have a nickname? The Freak. The punky, the punky QB. The Freak. That's the, an unusual. Yeah, the freak. That's yeah. a good one. So we just named like five bears nicknames. Yeah. Well, the, the eighty-five bears had a lot of nicknames. They had a lot of. Nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, hope everybody enjoys the the game this weekend. But it is right in the midst of calving season for some. We're right on the front end for others. I wanted to ask you guys. We've talked about uh, difficult calving. Some of the things that we do on the calf side. We have not talked a lot about the cow side. And on the cow side. There are a couple things that we need to consider. Sometimes that last stage of labor, Bob, as you've told me before, concludes when that placenta comes out. But there are times that that placenta doesn't come out on its own. So tell me, tell me and what I would see is the placenta is still there after right. calving. What do I do about it? Well, the good thing in, in cattle, beef cattle, is that isn't a big health concern. Usually you can just leave that alone. In fact, we kind of recommend that you leave it alone. You might cause more problems uh, than you solve by grabbing it and trying to pull it out. Uh, and I want to make a couple of points though. That's very different compared to other species. Like a horse, if a horse has retained placenta, that is actually a medical emergency and you need to get the veterinarian out and get it that, you know, take care of that very quickly. Um, but the cow is just not in that category. So that is not a medical emergency. I still want it to come out eventually and might monitor it, monitor her for her health, you know, her appetite. Does she act normal? Is she paying attention to her calf? And almost always she is. She's acting healthy. She's fine. And sooner or later, and sooner or later, maybe a couple of days, that will come out. Um, and usually we don't treat. Now, anytime you see her acting sick, well, that's a different situation. Then get the veterinarian out to, to look at her and and treat her. And it, there may be more than just that retained placenta. So and, and the way that that placenta is attached, if you ever get to see it, it's pretty darn cool how there's an attachment between that placenta and the uterus, basically like fingers going into little holes. And so just pulling on it 
we're going to leave pieces of that behind. Mm -hmm. Is that is that your yeah. concern about pulling on it? Yeah, we're actually concerned about actually causing some tissue damage on the inside in the uterus, leaving some tags of placenta where they don't belong. Just just let time solve this problem. Now, the other question that that you didn't ask, but I'm going to answer is, you know, why would we have a retained placenta? And uh, one of the reasons is a lot, you know, sometimes following an abortion, sometimes following a difficult birth or a C-section. Um, and again, you just think when the birth process didn't really go the way it's supposed to. And there is also a couple of nutritional things. We, we've identified low selenium, vitamin E, those types of things that sometimes show up as uh, retained placenta. So if it's, if it's associated with a cow that had a difficult birth or something like that, that's probably just why it happened. But if, if you're seeing some retained placentas in cows that calved without assistance, you might want to talk to your nutritionist as well and make sure that everything uh, in the in the mineral supplement and the diet is okay. Yeah, and I mean, I think if it's a if it's a mineral or a diet diet issue, you're probably going to see more than just one or two out of the herd. You're gonna you're gonna have several, and so that would be an possible indication that it is a dietary issue. And the, the other things that we'll see, and we talked a lot about retained placentas, but prolapses and, and prolapses of different kinds. And Brian, I'm going to turn to you and ask you, maybe help me distinguish, because we could have a prolapsed rectum, prolapsed vagina, uh, prolapsed uterus. Can you help me distinguish those? Because they'll be different sizes. Do you have any yep. sports balls, sports uh, ball analogies that, are, <laughs> that would allow us to compare what sizes those would be? Uh, I guess uh, I should have prepped you for this. Softball. Uh, for rectal prolapse, yeah. okay. maybe volleyball to basketball would be, I'd be a big yeah, vaginal prolapse, but a so, little bit bigger. Um, and then, uh, bigger than a beach ball. Yeah. Bigger than a beach ball for <laughs> you, uterus, uterine prolapse. Right? Yeah. yeah. And if we're talking about associated with calving, if it's before calving, we might be talking about more likely talking about rectal or vaginal and post calving, we're almost always talking about a uterine prolapse, right? And and it's kind of like Bob said with the retained placentas, it's not common, but usually when something went wrong with the calving is when we would expect to see a prolapse as well. And um, I guess, you know, usually if you've been in cattle production very long, um, you can, it's pretty easy to get the animal up where you can do an examination and a shoot somewhere where you can restrain it. Um, it's usually pretty easy to tell what you're dealing with, with a, with a good, just a good thorough examination. But, but of the three you talked about, it's also, and especially since we're going to contrast it with the uh, retained placenta, a uterine prolapse is a medical emergency. Yeah, absolutely. If you see that in the middle of the night, that's a time for the veterinarian to come out in the middle of the night. That is a medical emergency. Well, the other two, like vaginal and rectal prolapse, I need to get that in a timely manner, but not necessarily in the next hour or two. But the uterine prolapse, as soon as possible, need to address that. And the one, and the vaginal prolapse, you said maybe volleyball to basketball. If it continues getting bigger and bigger, it's becoming more and more of an emergency, right? So, so not just from the weather, but if you if you have that bladder trapped or we or we've cut off to where she's not able to urinate. We're going to want to get that put in pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah, and you mentioned weather, and I was going to throw that in. Uh, when it's minus 20 outside, I'd, it's not a medical emergency for the animal, but getting it taken care of right away is, if it's rectal or vaginal, like Bob said, a uterine prolapse, um, that is the potential that they can step on those, tear those, uh, they cause bleeding. I mean, th those are things that need to be taken care of immediately 
for the health of the cow, but also the sooner we resolve that, the less likely we are to end up with negative consequences for the next breeding and kind of the same with placentas that if we get them taken care of sooner than later um, it's more likely we'll have a cow that'll actually breed back and and like you said when it's cold that tissue gets damp because essentially the prolapse is the inside parts are on the outside and they're not made to be on the outside they're not covered with hair they don't have any protection from the elements and they can get pretty damaged pretty quickly in extreme cold temperatures but you guys both talked about having a, a, a vet come out. One of the things that they'll do is give an epidural in many cases. Uh, and why, why do, what, what does the epidural do and why do you give an epidural in those cases? So, I mean, what the epidural does is it, it blocks the sensation. So it's, it's just like if you were to go to the dentist and they were to <coughs> numb your, your gums because they're going to do an oral procedure, it's the same drug class, it basically numbs the sensation. What we're trying to do is if we reduce that, the animal's ability to feel that, they don't strain as much and it makes it easier for us. Because essentially what we have to do, whether it's any kind of prolapse, we have to get that tissue back in. And so um, if one of the one of the things we're often fighting is the animal continues to push because they feel irritated. And so um, Blocking, doing the epidural, blocking that sensation allows us to get that uterus back inside and not having to fight the cow. So if she has a uterine, vaginal, or rectal prolapse post-calving, should I get rid of that cow or keep her? Is she likely to have it again, or is this a one-off one deal? Well, a couple of ways to look at that is the, the vaginal prolapse has a genetic component. And, and so I identify those animals, and they, they are cold. I'm not going to keep them. Uh, the uterine prolapse, usually that's just a, a, the result of a series of difficult or bad things, and usually a large calf, a difficult birth, those types of things. And so, yeah, there's a genetic associated, associated with having a large calf, but there's not a genetic defect with the muscular <coughs> structure, and so she wouldn't necessarily have to be culled. Now, as Brian said, she might have a little higher likelihood of being open at the end of the breeding season than a cow that didn't have a problem. But if she became pregnant, I wouldn't hold that uterine prolapse against her usually. I'll, I'll give myself, there are exceptions, but usually it's not a genetic component. And that's different than the vaginal prolapse. That, that has a genetic component that the musculature is just not quite right or the hormonal imbalancers. I'm going to get, I'm going to cull that cow. There, there are some exceptions there though. It's, because you can have vaginal prolapses pre-calving, and those I'm, I'm with you, and they can be associated with other things as well. Post-calving, uh, you could have had some trauma that caused her to have some straining. So yes, there's a genetic component. I would lean toward like you. Yes, I would call that cow, but there could be exceptions to that rule. And you, you may say, well, maybe not, but you may have to deal with it again next year. Yeah, and I don't like dealing with these. Yeah, excellent. Well, Dustin, I know... One of the things that you brought to us is there was a report that came out a couple weeks ago, and it talked about that the cattle on feed were up 4%. That's the headline and basically the report. So tell, give, give us some interpretation there of what does that mean? What does that mean for us? So I think the report actually, when it said up 4%, that was for Kansas, not the rest of the United States. So just there's a difference there. I think the, the for the rest of the United States, total average was up 2%. So, and that was what the pre-market pre-expectations were. So what did that do to markets? I, mean, I don't think we saw any really difference. So I don't know that it caused a lot of uh, 
uh, chaos, if you will. But I mean, if you're a producer, I guess, if you want to think through what, what do these cattle on feed numbers mean today, if you're looking at the cattle on feed reports, probably maybe nothing today, but it's, it's going to help think about the prices in the, in the, in the future, right? When those calves are going into the feed yard, they're going to be coming out in, you know, what, 150 plus yeah. give or take days. Uh, so that will have an impact on, on prices for sure. Well, it makes me, I'm asking a question here. So when I see um, cattle on feed numbers going up, one of the things that implies to me is, well, we're not keeping heifers out of the, the meat chain. Uh, we're not retaining heifers to be replacement heifers yet in that, I don't know how strongly I can make that statement, but it certainly doesn't provide any evidence that we're keeping a lot of heifers back on the ranch to be replacement heifers yet. Am I safe saying that, or is there enough other things going on? I here? think you are, because I think the actual heifers were up 2% mm. nationally as well in that report. Uh, but that would be something I'd want to look at is, can you break that out, look at what the heifers versus steers, uh, maybe take a look at the slaughter numbers as well, like how many you know, cows, how many heifers are being, or, yeah, are being slaughtered. And another thing you said was it didn't surprise the, the the market. So the market kind of had penciled in a, a increase year over year increase. And so that was already, I'm assuming uh, that that means that when we get a big jump in or increase or decrease in cattle on feed that wasn't expected, that's when we would likely to see. That's the, when you start to see the market adjustments yeah, in the prices. So how, how good are you guys at knowing what these are going to go? Well, Which direction they're going to go? Obviously, the people who must talk, right? You, you must be talking. People who are making these kinds of predictions, I'm assuming that they are, they've got people out in the yards that they're talking to on a pretty regular basis saying, hey, here's who we're buying, or how, this is how many we're buying. Uh, here's what we're hearing from other yards. And so and if you're doing this for a living, you probably have got some contacts that you're. But so, a, sing, a single report, sorry, Brian, a single report probably doesn't change my heifer retention strategy if I'm a cow-calf producer. It's going to be if you see a trend month over month over month. I'm going to see a trend, and and I'm going to have a lag between anything that I do, right? If I say, oh, well, there people are still selling heifers, and I'm going to start retaining, it's going to be a couple years before I see the the benefits or reap any rewards from those calves. Yes, so this is a year-over-year increase, right? Yeah, so it it would be compared to the previous 2020 January 2023. 23. So what does it look like? Historic, is the 4% because 2023 was down and we've just kind of come back to where we are historically? Like what for overall capacity, what does that mean for like feeding capacity in Kansas? Are we getting back to where we're full or are we now over capacity? It's a great question. I, I don't I don't know the answer to the specific end of Kansas if we're at where we're at. Yeah. But that's a good point, Brian, is is the year over year, you have to know where you were last year too, right? If inventory was down or if inventory was up and then it goes up again, it's, it changes a lot. So in how you would interpret that. I think I think those are important. So as we think about kind of planning for the future, you have to make decisions. And if I'm hearing you correctly, Dustin, you want to make decisions for your operation, not necessarily not necessarily based on pieces of news that come out. Yeah, I mean, you're talking one report. And, and if you're trying, trying to retain heifers, you're talking, like you're saying, a couple of years out. It's I don't know how much you can make out of just one single report. Yep, excellent. Thanks, Dustin.
Now, guys, next next segment, we're going to do this a little bit different. So I've got some questions for you. This is calving season's questions, and there's no questions specifically for anybody, so all of you can jump in on these. But I want to get through several questions in the in the next few minutes. So n- no super long answers, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Not to not to name names. Mm, I'm sorry. You, I you did I, name just names. Slipped right out. All right. <laughs> okay. So calving season questions. Is it okay to castrate at birth, or should I wait until the calves a little bit older and can respond better? Yes. <laughs> Bob gave a short answer. Yeah. There we go. I think that's the shortest answer I've ever heard Bob give. Yeah. Um, so was the yes? It's okay to do it at birth. Yeah, it's yeah. it's okay to do it at birth, but it's also fine if you're going to handle you know a whole group of calves you know at two or three months of age that that's a good time too. Yeah, I I agree with Bob. Birth birth is fine. The earlier the better from a well welfare perspective. Doesn't mean you have to do it at birth. Um, there's some challenges with doing it then, but yeah, it's okay. Castrate or banned surgical castration or banding? Does it make a difference to you guys? I have a s- slight preference for surgical castration. It's just what I. I have more experience with, and I, I see, yeah, I have a, but that is not a strong preference. Same. Uh, do we need to, is there enough benefit to weigh calves at birth? Do I need a birth weight if I'm a commercial producer? I know purebred guys will weigh calves because that's going to be reported. If I'm a commercial producer, do I need to weigh calves at birth? I don't think there's a whole lot of value in that. I think for a commercial producer, the bigger value is birth date and tagging him so you know what cow or he he came from or what is who, who his dam is um or her dam if it's a heifer um I, the weight i don't think is, is extremely valuable to a commercial producer i think it's it's i think it's more effort than it has value i i agree and i think it's inversely related the benefit is inversely related to how friendly or unfriendly mom is <laughs> so, the, so the cost of that equation may be yes. maybe challenging so that was that's actually leads into my next question brian is uh any tips or tricks for dealing with uh mothers who are i'll say uh highly protective of their newborns <laughs> Well, you'll get some good stories out of the deal and possibly a dented uh, truck, yeah. pickup truck door. That, that is a challenge. And, and you do need, you know, all seriousness uh, aside, you need to be aware of the safety issues. Uh, those, those, that's when you hear about people getting hurt. And so I think we've all experienced that cow trying to climb in the pickup truck with us. And I just, I, you didn't need to take it seriously. Yeah, you just, I mean, you want something between you and her. You don't want to necessarily be just trying to do it out there on the ground. Yeah, and, and, and an extra set of eyes is really helpful for those. It's not all of them, but you know who they are. Yep, that's right. And w- watching their body language, right? I mean, they're, they're going to often give you some signals. The ones that are scariest are the ones that don't give a lot of signals, but they'll give some signals as they go forward. What do I need to write down at birth? Philip, you mentioned I'm going to tag the calf. Do I just need tag and birth date? Is there anything else that you guys are recording? Dustin, do you have anything that your producers record as you... Uh, keep track of those records and we just talked about weight maybe you don't need to i'd say birth date i guess yep the biggest so birth date and tag number for the calf everybody's nodding so i'll say agreement on that one how do i manage mud during calving season i'll give you an easy one here Mm -hmm. i hate mud have your ranch in a drought (laughs) (laughs) i I do think 
keeping uh, the where you're going to calve, keep in mind, well, how, how likely is it to become muddy? I mean, a dry lot is not necessarily a great place to calve out cows. I'm trying to get them out on a grass trap, bring them out into a pasture, someplace where, and again, you know, you're not going to have the, 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 the grass production to help, uh, but still try to get them spread out. And so it might mean, um, you know, some fencing, some moving of cattle, different things, because those young calves, again, those first few weeks of life, um, mud is particularly hard on those young calves. Well, and using some things like gravel or concrete or something in the really high traffic areas, because, I mean, you can't move the water or the feed bunk lots of times, and so just having stuff to take care of the mud in those areas where you can't move cows. But sometimes you can move the water in the feed bunks, and you should plan to do that so that they don't make you don't make high traffic areas that don't need to be too right so so if that you know if that's a possibility then you might plan to do that as well yeah absolutely if you can move those it'd be great because you you can control the traffic through the pasture and picking my calving pasture having it have some slope having it have some drainage having an area where they can get into the dry because the cows will try to keep their calves out of the mud when possible but if they're constantly around a hay ring it's going to be going to be challenging uh dipping navels i that happens a lot of time on the dairy side is that something we need to worry about on the beef side should we try to if we catch a calf and we're going to tag him do i need to dip his navel i i some people may disagree with me. That's not a big priority for me. And, and the reason, the thought process is we do see calves that get navel ill, right? And that's usually calves that didn't get a good meal of colostrum and they're in an environment that's dirty. If a calf didn't get good colostrum and he's in an environment that's dirty, I don't think dipping his navel is going to make any difference. And if he got a good meal of colostrum and he's in a pretty clean environment, he doesn't need his navel dipped. So it's, it's, yes, navel ill is important, but I'm going to deal with that with trying to keep as a sanitary an environment as possible. I'm not opposed to navel dipping, but again, a lot of times with beef cattle, we're not there at the time they're born, and, and I'm not necessarily encouraging people to just get out there and mess with that calf right then. I don't know what, Brian may disagree with me. but No, I, I actually, it, I'm kind of, it, it's not going to hurt anything. Um, if you're out there tagging him, you know, go for it. Um, but I, I'm not convinced it does. It, navel ill is not real common, and I agree with Bob. We manage that by managing the environment and the calf, not trying to put something on him. And just briefly, Brian, define navel ill. Navel ill that you guys have said a couple times. Yeah. So navel ill is a it's a infection of the um, where the umbilical cord attached. That's the navel or belly button, right for the calf. So um, what can happen is if they're in a dirty environment. Um, they bacteria can actually go, can follow up that navel, and actually there's it's the there's a vein that's inside the calf um, that goes to their liver. Um, they can that bacteria can travel all the way up, and um, most of the time the infection is right there at the skin level, and we can do surgery or open it up and drain it. Uh, sometimes they get an abscess up by their liver, and those calves get really really sick, but it it's a really rare condition that we would see. Okay. I asked you guys about castration at birth. What about implants at birth, growth promoting implants? I wouldn't do that at birth. I would do that at branding time or you're giving your pre-breeding vaccinations to the cows. That'd be the time that I would do that. I, don't, I haven't seen any data on doing it at birth, but I don't think that's very common. 
Yeah. The one thing I would add is do make sure that you have castrated them. Either you castrated them at birth and give them an implant later, or if you're giving them an implant at that grass turnout time or two months of age, something like that, that you castrate them at the same time. Yeah. And any differences on heifers at birth with given implants? Yeah. Well, don't castrate them. Um, <laughs> good, good point. <laughs> so on, on heifers, no. Per, so for replacement heifers, I don't like if I know that she's going to be a replacement heifer, I don't want to implant her. Uh, there are There is an implant that's approved for use in replacement heifers, but even then the timing is really important. Not at birth, not near weaning. The only time it's really allowed on label is around that two to three months of age, and that probably has the least amount of potential for negative effects. Yeah, so follow the labels. There's some rationale for, for all of those products and when they should be given. So appreciate you guys answering those questions and, and following along. If you have other questions you'd like us to answer, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.